Welcome to SKUcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs in the promotional products industry. SKUcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SKUcast is the official podcast of Common SKU. Market forces are driving a tidal wave of change, and riding atop this surge is a new emerging creative class of distributors and suppliers. Where we're going to see the innovation, the influx of new, fresh talent is in this other side that we're talking about. And that's the side of the business that I think the traditional promotional products business is doesn't know what to do with. I'm Bobby Leehew, the Chief Content Officer at CommonSQ, and in this episode, Mark Ram and I discuss how the fashion-forward buying habits of millennial customers are creating a new demand. We highlight the rise of the creative entrepreneur, the agile and progressive supplier, and the traditional businesses who are disrupting their own companies from within. The last time we talked, we talked about uh, the promotional landscape, and we went over the, the highlights and what the industry would look like in the next five to ten years. And there is something we discovered along the way, and that is this phenomenon of this rise of small niche or niche suppliers, distributors, and then just the, the, the changes that have happened throughout the industry that have now blurred distinctive lines that were there before. Um, what do you think of when I think in terms of the industry? You know, Jim Martin in a recent video uh, that, that from his SKUCon videos – uh, talked about this, that the lines have blurred, that the industry and some of the distinct channels we used to have no longer exist. Um, would you say that's the case? I, I I do. And I think that for me, I reflect on the the time that I have been in the industry. And of course, when I started off uh, as, as a distributor with Right Sleeve, I think about that experience in the, from the late 90s to, you know, basically to the present. I think that when I first started, there, 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 there seemed to be a real focus on the big traditional distri- or, sorry, suppliers that were leaders in their right. categories and they had reps on, on, on the ground and they had the big catalogs, they had the big booths and they were the ones that you went to for your bags, your writing instruments, your, you know, your t-shirts and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and I still think you see that to a large extent today, but where I, where I feel there's been a shift, and this is maybe just my particular perspective, is I feel you've got this interesting new class of supplier that is elbowing its way into the landscape um, in, in a way that I don't think we've seen in the last... 10, 15 years. I mean, yes, there have always been small suppliers. So for people that are saying, well, hang on, Mark, (laughs) there's always been small suppliers. I think what I'm trying, the point that I'm trying to make right now is that this new class of small to mid-sized suppliers elbowing their way onto the main stage and the industry is really taking notice as opposed to the industry saying, oh, there's a small guy over there. We don't need to worry about him or her. And and I, I think some of the examples that I give are, are suppliers like the T-shirt tycoons of the industry or Origadio or even Rumi to, uh, to some extent, where these companies that have almost come out of nowhere and are a fraction of the size of the big 
uh, more prominent uh, suppliers like Leeds and Alpha and Sanmar, if I give those as examples of the more traditional entrenched suppliers that really dominate their categories. And, 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 and I just think it's really interesting that you've got these newer suppliers that are starting to gain market share pretty rapidly and are really starting to set the tone for what I think the next five or 10 years of this industry will be, will, will, will be about. Yeah, and it seems as though technology is playing a big part of the role of leveling the landscape. And I and I kind of mean technology, not necessarily, um, the, although this too, from an operations perspective, more from a communications perspective. So they can reach out and touch and, and a, a bigger audience than, say, 20 years ago. So I think you're right. I think you can get to market faster. Yep. You can elbow your way in better. And there's also this other aspect of disintermediation. Folks are often asking, when is our industry going to be disintermediated? When are we going to be disrupted? Well, actually, the disruption is happening in very small segments and very small bites, and it's nipping away at sort of product categories. And I think Origadio is a really good example of this. Yeah, I, I think that the the point about technology leveling the playing field is 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 absolutely a critical point. And if I think back to you know the late '90s when certainly when I was getting started, and I know you were in full swing in your career at that time, you you didn't really have uh, the internet. Uh, you did, certainly didn't have social media at the time to give people the platform to reach out and 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 communicate with a number of people. And you, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, 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 if you think about Orgadio, just as an example, they just come to mind because I know that they're they're fairly prominent in how it is that they go to market from a social media perspective. So. Um, if you look at their Instagram, you look at their Facebook, or you look at even how they're active in a, in a platform like Common Skew, which is more focused on just the industry, that that you have a player that's really engaged with great content, very responsive on all these channels, right. they're building relationships well beyond their home office or their head office in California. And keep in mind, this, this is a supplier that does not have a field sales force. And if they have a field sales force, it's tiny. Um, but for the most part, this is a company that is going to market with uh, with a head office staff that's situated in one state, and but they're blanketing the whole, con- uh, the whole uh, continent with their content. So compare yeah. that with a large supplier like um, uh, like a poly concept or or even an Alpha Broder, if you go and take a look at their social media presences, you take a look at Twitter, you take a look at Instagram, you take a look at Facebook for those two particular suppliers. And I'm not slinging mud at those suppliers at all. It's just, I want to, I just want to set that up as a point of comparison that Origadio blows them out of the water. Now, mind you, if you are polyconcept of your Alpha Broder, you would blow Origadio out of the water with your catalog, with your field sales force, with your customer service. And there's lots of things that those companies that are doing that are exceptionally well as well. But the point that I'm making is that as a small supplier, you're able to get a massive voice. You're able to create this huge level of engagement that some of the bigger, more established, more traditional suppliers are just not able to compete with because they they don't have the expertise they may not have the know-how or maybe the, even the level of interest because what they know has worked for them so well, and that's that more traditional approach. Yeah, and I, the nimbleness is is one of the keys. I mean, obviously, the larger you get, the more bureaucracy you have, period. 
Um, and that's a big deal. You know, I, I, the, the term Skunk Works has been around a long time. It was the official alias for Lockheed Martin's advanced development projects. You know, it's widely used um, for those um, projects inside large organizations that you can disrupt within your own company. But one of the interesting aspects, one of the key factors to Skunk Works inside a large organization, and I think this is where you see this happening as an organic um, trajectory with a small organization is one of the keys were the number of people having any connection with a project must be restricted in an almost vicious manner. That's one of the principles in terms of um, developing cool, awesome, you know, disruptive ideals within your uh, large organization. But you can see that they're they're taking that that idea from the thumbprint of somebody that is small, that is nimble, that is making decisions quickly, that is acting fast. Um, so it's a lot of it is to do with nimbleness, right? You know, I'm. I want to ask you this question, Bobby. We we had a a, a skewcast uh, just a week or so ago. You, myself, and and Sam, where we were talking about the big supplier squeeze, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think the the thrust of that discussion was around how uh, big distributors were going to big suppliers and putting the squeeze on them because the big distributor was bringing big volume. Mm-hmm. But if you look at these smaller types of suppliers, and we don't have one of them on the call here, so I want to make sure I'm not making assumptions here, but I'm, I'm going to, well, I'll make an assumption here. <laughs> and if it's not right, then 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 people can write in uh, with, with their objections. That if you're a smaller, more nimble supplier with a, with a, a unique line that a lot of other people don't have, my guess, my assumption here is that that big distributor does not have the same leverage to squeeze you. And my assumption here is that if you're, if you're someone who is playing in that space that's more creative, more nimble, that you're the one who's able to call the shots and not having to kowtow to the demands of one of those bigger distributors that says, well, in order to get on our preferred list, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Do you agree with that? I I do um, to some degree because um, you know I, I would suspect that some of the smaller suppliers are still getting some of that pressure, um, but I probably it has to do with the more unique that product line is, the less. I think which I think is your point that the more unique the product line is, the less pressure you're getting. Probably because the less consistent sales you're going to get through that supplier. Um, There might be spot work that that is unique to a client. But, you know, once the interesting what will be interesting to watch is as many of these smaller suppliers grow and as, you know, at at one point, Leeds was the Aurig Audio, right? At one point, Gymline was the Aurig Audio. So it will be interesting to see as some of these organizations grow, um, if they can keep their scrappiness in terms of their um, DNA. I think that some of them will because it is a part of their DNA. But I think think as they're growing, they're going to get more and more pressure just because they're getting more uh, invitations to the table, so to speak, in terms of the proposals to clients. Well, and I I think that this tension between, as as you say, spot work, which – uh, 
you know, is, is, is maybe less predictable versus the more program work where uh, inventory and, and lead time is something that's really, really crucial. I think that there's a real tension between that because the assumption is that spot work is hip, cool, creative, innovative, but not necessarily predictable, whereas the program work is the kind of thing that you're getting on 24-hour turns, uh, inventory is really predictable, and you're purchasing the product in black and blue as opposed to, you know, some funky PMS color. Um, I, I, th I think that I, th I think there is a tension between those two, and I, I'd be curious to ask someone like Jason at Origadio whether he sees a day, and maybe we can get him on to a subsequent skewcast, ask him this question, whether he sees a day where his cool boxan product that he sells um, could one day be in every program um, and and produced reliably just like a leads product would be now he may argue the answer to that is yes because his supply chain is really efficient but at the end of the day leads just has so much more momentum and so much more capabilities to produce at a, at, a, at, a, at a scale that he may not be able to do. Yeah. You, you know, um, that, that's a good point. One of the interesting aspects, too, I think, is that when you look at this, uh, so you talk about the smaller supplier, then you have this sort of medium-sized supplier and this large supplier. There's an interesting trend. Maybe it's not a trend. Maybe it's just normal and it happens every year and it happens with so many suppliers. But I, it just seems to me a little more noticeable is that you're seeing this disruption from within a, a supplier's own product categories or product line. Now, a lot of that's just good business. They're expanding their product category so they can sell because they have a – they have a uh, steady clientele, and they can basically broaden their categories and sell more product to those clients. But you're also seeing this little disruptive work going on within side traditional suppliers like Numo, where Jim Martin talked about the city cut and sew and what they did. That was an interesting little disruption inside their own yep. organization, right? Yep. And same thing what I see with Snugs and the rise in their USA-made product. And of course, they do a lot of USA-made product there. But you're seeing some interesting innovation come with from within side of these. And sometimes I wonder if the energy from some of these other small suppliers and seeing them coming in and grabbing some of that segmentation of the market isn't, isn't sort of uh, invigorating some folks. Probably not, but... Yeah, I, I, I don't know. But I think that those two suppliers are fascinating examples of companies that were... Um, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb here and say pretty tired uh, pretty tired, commoditized categories. So let's take Numo as an example. When I and I've told this to Jim several times. When I first encountered Numo several years ago, you'd see him at a trade show. They would have the science fair Bristol board, you know, uh, Velcro display. Uh, looked pretty rudimentary with some pretty basic, ugly-looking koozies that were sold to a particular uh, customer base. Not particularly innovative or unique, just there. And and I think, in fairness to Numo, was doing pretty well within that particular category. But I wouldn't say we're winning any awards from a design or innovation perspective. So now look at Snugs. If you look at Snugs several years ago, like let's say 10, 15 years ago, Snugs was a leader, or if not the leader, in lanyards and badges and did an excellent job at it, uh, excellent customer service. But let's let's face it, we're talking lanyards and badges. Pretty boring. <laughs> uh, now, we recognize it's a big category, but not 
particularly innovative. Now, what I find fascinating is that obviously there was a decision made at the leadership level to go and uh, reinvent and not get away from koozies or lanyards in the case of those two suppliers, but reinvent and get into different categories where design and creativity was at the forefront. You take a look at, at Numo, you've got City Cut and Sew, you've got um, uh, some additional product categories that are hugely creative, very, very retail, and has completely reimagined how it is that they go to market. And then you take Snugs, they're getting into these awesome van style shoes, they're getting into um, all these leather made products that they're doing in house. It's not like they're importing them from China, they're making them all within the US. You look at the addition of Jeff Anderton on the video side at Snugs with all the videos and the storytelling. It, it's completely amazing how a traditional company has now gone from, you know, th this traditional stance to now something that is leading the market and there's no one doing what they're doing. And right. my guess is the margins are probably pretty good and they're in their own league. So kudos to those two companies for yeah. reimagining how it is they go to market. And, and, and that's the revolution that I'm talking about. And I think that they're doing it because it's good for business. Right. And, and I think, you know, back to the Numo example, one of my suspicions, too, is that, you know, buyers, the millennial buyers, um, we're not the disruption isn't isn't obvious and apparent. But when you look at more fashion forward trends that are that are happening within the industry, I mean, 15 years ago, you could have walked the show floor and you could barely find a brand name. Right. You could I mean, you, you there were brand names everywhere, but not like there is now. I mean, now they're everywhere. And so you're seeing this um, increase in fashion forward purchasing. I think a lot of this has to do with um, the millennial surge is impacting um, product selection and product choices because millennials don't separate work life and work life and their real life. You know, there's no there's not a distinction between the two. So they're bringing their experiences from outside of work and business and bringing them in and saying, you know what, I want that particular shirt. I want to, I want something that I would wear all the time. And and in a very uh, very simplistic elementary way, what I'm suggesting is that that um, a lot of them are innovating because the market demand yep. is is happening right before them. And they're finally able, I think there's people like Jim's a good example, is an eclectic personality who you've always had this person um, with an innovative way of thinking. It's just now that the market is there, there's a responsive market you can be more creative with, I think. Yep. And this is probably the case with distributors too. Yeah, yeah. So in, in fact, to shift this conversation to distributors, I think you're seeing folks like Renya and other small distributors that are coming into the market that have a more fashion-forward, progressive attitude yep. with their clientele, they're yeah. finding a ready market that actually has a budget for this. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I think that, you, you know, it's it's fascinating to see the pendulum switch, uh, uh, to, to see the pendulum swing, um, because on one hand, you can make an argument that scale and reliability and, and having the product in stock is absolutely essential for that big Fortune 500 uh, corporate program where you've been grinded on price and you've been grinded on delivery and grinded on rebates or prebates or whatever that case may be. And, and that, that's, that's a, a very large and dynamic part of the market. But I also think that you see a, an equally large and dynamic part of the market that is being serviced by distributors like Renny Nelson or Ted Church or um, <clears throat> folks that are in that particular category where they seek out the innovative new, cool, eclectic products, because that's what their customer base is looking for. Their customer base is not looking for black in stock, 24 hour turn time. Their customer is looking for 
innovative, new, unique products that may require some lead time. And that, of course, then comes down to the distributor being able to anticipate that 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 corporate accounts need so that they can get that product to them so that it's not that 24 hour rush in black. Yeah. And, 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 and that is a large, large part of the market that I think a lot of the more traditional distributors and suppliers don't understand at all. Um, and I think that that represents an incredible opportunity for uh, that that new, or I wouldn't say it's new, but that emerging creative class of distributor that's very entrepreneurial, yeah. creative, independent, and 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 does not care about that rebate from the supplier, does not care about the fact that there's a 24 hour turn time. I mean, sure, there's some orders that they may apply to, but that 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 is not what's going to get their attention. And I think that suppliers need to sit up and listen to that and recognize that there is that new class of distributor out there that is demanding. But if you can meet their needs, you will have a customer for a long, long time and a high margin and profitable customer at that. Yeah. And I think you found the right phrase for that. It's an emerging creative class of distributors that are coming out of that. And Ted Church is a great example of somebody who's who's proving this um, with his distributorship, he's able also seeing this market response and market demand out there. And, you know, for traditional distributors too, they're feeling this pressure big time because you have corporate buyers, um, you have, you'll have a 21, 23, 25-year-old who's suddenly responsible for half a million or a million dollar in spend, and they're wanting fresh ideas. And I've seen this trend happen through the industry, and now I think it's more profound than ever before. Aside from performance issues, the number one reason why a promotional products distributor loses a customer, aside from service issues, some obvious apparent things, but the number one reason aside from that is lack of new ideas. And you're going to see that as a chronic problem grow more and more as these buyers are bringing their fashion forward trending. And the other, the internet, again, here's where the internet has leveled the landscape. Within a mouse click, they're able to go and turn and see, you know, they're filtering what they love and want and wish through Instagram and Pinterest. And they're seeing things that they love. And then they turn to their brand that they work for and they're like, oh, you know, we've got to freshen this thing up. And yeah. It's and it's a it's a great opportunity for those that are nimble and ready to leverage that. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is that there's a lot of conversations I think amongst the more traditional distributor base that gets all bent out of shape about uh, their end client sending them a four imprint or discount mugs URL with the with 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 the message. Can you? Uh, can you find this particular product or can you match or beat this price? Mm-hmm. Okay. And and that happens a lot. And and I think it's a, it's, it's a challenge and that's a separate uh, podcast for us to explore that. Um, however, there's also an equal number of end clients that are not on 4imprint because 4imprint is a basic catalog of basic promotional products that can be produced quickly and efficiently. And, and there's a need for that. But there's a whole host of other end clients that are not sending for imprint links. They're sending Instagram links. They're sending Pinterest links. They're sending links to Shopify stores. Right. And they're sending it to the distributor saying, can you find something like this? Or this is what I had in, in mind. And I think that, that that really marks the beginning of a very collaborative and creative um, relationship between end client and distributor that is not, hey, can you match this? 
because that then throws the distributor all, it gets them all bent out of shape because they inevitably can't match the margin that Four Imprint has. But in contrast to the Instagram link or the Pinterest link, it really starts a creative conversation about creative sourcing, about understanding where that brand wants to go. And I think that's very, that's very, very exciting because then you have an empowered end client that is thinking big as opposed to thinking small yeah. by going on to a transaction site and saying, hey, can you go and match this 79 cent pen, which I think is terrible, 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 terrible. Right. And if you're in that spot, I think you as a distributor, you have misread your end client or you've got the wrong end client. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go on the record and say that. Right. Well, and, you, and you're seeing this through CommonSkew, but we're seeing this everywhere where you're seeing uh, brands that ask for some very unique products. Um, a, a good example, I was in um, San Francisco and Zach Tyler's office at Creative Merchandise. And here is a distributor who, very young distributorship, um, very energetic, very enthusiastic, and they're serving um, software clientele, obviously, some a apps and some very progressive names. I won't drop any names here without his permission, but some very progressive names that are very noticeable from the San Francisco area. And they're in the heart of downtown San Francisco. I asked Zach, what percentage of your business falls outside of traditional industry lines? And it was, I don't remember the exact number, but it was something like a third. Yeah. Um, of the, of the requests were coming in were from these non um, supplier uh, traditional supplier lines because they were being driven by progressive branding, basically progressive fashion forward asks. And I ask, I also ask, I also ask, what what kind of markup are you getting on? It was getting healthy markup still. So it's not as if they're leaving money. It's not as if they're acquiescing um, to a brand and then saying, well, we just can't make enough money off that. That was not the key. The key was the partner, the, the client trusted them, the client wanted them to source it, and uh, they were still able to make good points on it. Uh, absolutely. A hundred percent. I think that, 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 that that's where the margin is. Uh, I, I'm actually surprised that it's more than or that that it's not more than thirty percent. Yeah. Uh, particularly if you're talking about a clientele like that, that is very tech savvy. They've got the 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 internet at their disposal. Right. I think what you're seeing there is not a buyer, and I made this point before. I think what you're seeing there is not a buyer that's typing in a leads skew into Google, and uh, followed by you know cheapest price. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. I think that happens, and we see that on the Facebook promotional products group, where lots of people talk about that, and, and that 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 is a concern. But I think that what you're seeing a lot with these kinds of savvy buyers is not so much that as much as they're googling trends and you know new ideas, retail inspiration. And I think to you know use Zach as an example, he's got a really cool site. He's got great um, you know great content. And that's the kind of stuff that is getting found. And if that's getting found by that millennial buyer, that's mm -hmm. where the trust is. That's where the margin is. And and there they may be challenging sourcing projects, but at the end of the day, that's what a distributor does. I mean, a distributor needs to prove their value through creative sourcing, creative ideas. Right. I remember one of my favorite takeaways from Ted Church's talk was him saying, I mean, here you look at the success that Anthem has had, and you look at this incredible brand. I mean, arguably, they are, um, to me, in terms of branding and creativity, sort of the, the pinnacle, right? So, something, an exemplar, I think, for us. But I love that Ted said he, he still thinks to this day how many crazy projects they've had because they have this very progressive variance, and then he's still stumpsing. He'll think, how the hell are we going to pull that off? Yeah. 
but that's where that's where a lot of the energy for a small creative or even not just small but a dis- distributor lies. The energy in the business, the enthusiasm for the business, that's where it happens. And you know, we're seeing I think a lot of this is responding to the market. Fairware is a great example of a response to the market in a, a niche specialty. Um, that you see this nimbleness, you see this progressive attitude, um, you see this unapologetic attitude toward their service and their branding and their ideals and where they're going and what they're doing. Yep. Um, and it's very encouraging. Yep. Yeah, no, I think it, I, I, I think it's incredibly encouraging. I think it's, it's definitely where the future growth of the industry lies. Um, I, I'm not taking away from the 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 side of the business that focuses on scale and focuses on cost containment and focuses mm-hmm. on you know uh, sourcing at a very reliable large scale level. I think that that's a side of the business that's here to stay, and I applaud the vendors and the distributors that focus in that space. But to go back and 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 cite that article about the supplier squeeze. The reason that's happening is because that side of the business is very mature Um, and clients are savvy. They've got very savvy procurement departments that are negotiating these deals and they know just like a Walmart buyer or a Target buyer or whoever, uh, a buyer at a large retail chain, they're savvy and they know that with volume is going to come these these, uh, um, expectations of cost containment. And and, and I, I think... We're kidding ourselves as an industry if we think that the industry is going to continue to grow creatively, grow from a margin perspective, and grow at a top line if we're relying upon that side of the business to take us there. Um, yeah. I think we're kidding ourselves. I think where we're going to see the innovation, the influx of new, fresh talent is in this other side that we're talking about. And that's the side of the business that I think the traditional promotional products business is doesn't know what to do with, is intimidated by. I think the associations don't really speak to them either. And, and I think that, that that's where we need to see some of the people that we're talking about right here really be put on a pedestal so that they can bring new people like them into this space so we can continue to grow well beyond our $21 billion size we are right now. Great point. You know, we'll be talking to Tom Ghost soon. And one of the interesting questions I have for him is, is how um, how unique the, the association membership has become in terms of they used to be identifiable. They're no longer easily identifiable um, in terms of the distinction of suppliers and distributors and the classes, if you will, if uh, that's a bad word, but um, the distinctions. Here's a, to shift the conversation just a little bit, Mark. Um, one thing that you're seeing in the larger distributor, you're seeing um, – this rise in international organizations. So you're seeing um, yeah. the, the folks uh, like Facilis that have branched out across uh, overseas in terms of their European connections. You're seeing this demand from large distributors to do more and more of that. And I yep. think all of us feel this, particularly that have been in the business a while. You're seeing this consolidation of traditional distributorships. Now, what you may not be seeing is the consolidation of an alliance in terms of ownership, but you might be seeing – or I'm sorry – what, you, what you're seeing is a consolidation of strategy. You may not yep. necessarily of ownership, but you're seeing this consolidated strategy. This is where the buying groups are coming into play. This is where the sister companies that are international organization over in Europe or in uh, you know, Great Britain, wherever it might be, is you're, you're seeing this shift there. Do you think this is because 
the traditional side of the business is beginning to feel that margin pressure or it's just simply market demand that the world's gotten flatter and the demands have become greater for that? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a, a combination of the two, no question. Um, you know, if you were to speak to someone like uh, Jamie Mayer at Swervepoint, um, and uh, there's no question that in their quest, um, and just using him as an example, to be relevant with Fortune 500 companies that have a, got a global footprint, that to go and and present yourself as a truly international entity that can service the Australian business, the Canadian business, the European business, just like you can service the U.S. business. That 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 is a big check mark. That um, you, uh, a lot of these uh, large global end clients are expecting. Yeah. If you were to speak to Chuck Fandos and even go and refer to the Promo Kitchen podcast that I had with Chuck a few months ago, where he was awesome and so open about the new opportunities that he had with uh, brand edition um, that was a huge driver for um, for the for the sale with gateway and gateway in the past had been a, a, a very prominent US based distributor that had a lot of prominent uh, fortune 500 business but I think had struggled to be relevant outside the US and this deal gave him immediate access to a supply chain um, um, uh, an international supply chain that allowed him to be relevant with these end clients. So I think that that's, uh, I think that's happening, no question. And I think that cost containment is also a big issue as well. Again, was you're dealing with these big procurement um, organizations, and maybe that's where some of these smaller, more nimble, creative uh, distributors like the Renya Nelsons of the world, maybe that's where they can't play because it would be difficult for them to go and produce an order for an Indian head office just as much as she may be able to produce it for the Salt Lake City head office of, of some client that she's working with. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but but that may be intimidating for right. that smaller, more creative distributor. Or, you know what? Maybe it's not because of the power of the internet. Maybe she's a, uh, um, uh, an ask away um, you know, on either Facebook or Common Skew or social media for a partner in India that might be able to help her out. Right. And, and, and that may in fact be the case where she can yeah. just as much as some of these more entrenched organizations can. I think so. And Rinya is probably a bad example because you don't tell Rinya she can't do anything because she... That is true. That's right. Right. <laughs> but so to, to, do you, as you're looking, as we're considering this, Mark, here's what's interesting from, from my perspective is that I come from a traditional distributorship background. And as I look at CommonSkew and I look at your involvement in the industry, because of CommonSkew, you've been you have been put in a unique position to see the market from a different perspective. You have also had a lot of these energetic, fast-growing, nimble suppliers and distributors reach out to you and find you because you sort of represent a part of their tribe in terms of um, the, the, their aspiration, I think. And so there's this synergy you're picking up on from this audience. Um, have you noticed some commonalities? I mean, I'm trying to, as we wrap up here, I'm trying to think of the takeaways. Whether you're a large distributor or whether you're a small distributor, are there some commonalities that, that are shared amongst these organizations that we can learn from? You mean on the supplier side? Let's take the supplier side first and then move to the area we're more familiar with, distributor side. And in supplier side, we may not be as knowledgeable on that, but you've had experience with that. Well, I, I think my my perspective 
from a common skew uh, stance as it relates to suppliers, um, and I hope I'm answering your question properly here, um, is that what I'm fascinated by is the um, is the proactiveness and the enthusiasm with which these suppliers embrace platforms like Common Skew to connect with their customers, and 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 I think that the enthusiasm is an important word that I use here because. On one hand, I think that you've got some suppliers that come into a common SKU environment and really struggle because they they don't know what kind of content to post. They don't know how to develop the relationships. Um, they're very geographically contained. Um, they've invested heavily in, in a field sales force that is required to make four phone calls or four site visits a day. And as a result, doesn't have time to engage on some of these technological channels. Um, those suppliers, as a general rule, um, are, are quite flat-footed in social media as well as in common skew. They come in, they post a couple flyers, uh, they don't get a lot of engagement, and they say, well, that didn't work. <laughs> um, and, and to which I say, yeah, I'm not surprised it didn't work because you didn't try or you were applying some of you, uh, a very traditional technique to a very new way of doing business. Conversely... Um, I'm fascinated by these uh, by by these suppliers that come in with a very creative, nimble, enthusiastic approach, where they just say, "I don't have anything to lose, and I'm going to respond to as many requests and be as helpful as humanly possible, knowing that it's going to take some time to build relationships here, but I'm going to be in front." of as many people with relevant content and helpful content so that I can beat the big guy that I'm competing with that's flat-footed. And when I look at that, I look at it with a sense of intrigue and a sense of excitement that I think that to me, it's the beginning of a new world order where you have some, uh, where, where the entrepreneurial creative spirit beats out the bigger, more flat-footed, conservative supplier that can't get out of their own way when it comes to engaging in some of these new channels. So I, I love that. And I salute those creative entrepreneurs that are just given it and providing great value on channels like Common Skew. On the distributor side, what are you seeing in terms of when you look at the the Rinyas and the Zacks and the Ted Churches and you're seeing this, not just progressive from a creative merchandise standpoint, but you're seeing an attitude. You're seeing this um, DNA that's kind of different. Are there similarities? Are the lessons we can draw from the distributor side? Yeah, I think I think what you're seeing on the distributor side is a huge sense of curiosity. Mm. Um, I think you also see this um, that, that this idea that um, of openness and collaboration with other competitors. I think that the, the the ones that tend to be in this category that we just talked about are the ones that. Um, give back as much as they take. Um, they, they probably give back more than they take from the community. And I think that that um, is, is generally a mindset that I think defines this new class of distributor as opposed to the traditional distributor that might have said, well, this is my competitor. I don't want to give them my ideas. I don't want to see them succeed at all because they represent someone that's going to take business away from me. And I don't think that Common Skew invented this at all. I think that all we've done is tapped into this idea 
that helping and collaborating with a competitor, whether they're in your same market or in a different market, leads to much greater benefit than than um, than, than than otherwise. And that I think remains really exciting because it makes the industry. Um, uh, much more collaborative. It's less zero sum, um, and and it's something that I'm very proud to be a part of, and it's something that we're very proud to enable um, through the platform that we've created. The landscape has allowed you to specialize, unlike any I think on any other time before. I think it's also allowing you to, the freedom and the creative latitude to be eclectic, to be different. So there's now a responsive market, so you can build a brand with confidence that the spend in the market will be there um, and you have a ready market, I think, for those ideals. Um, I love this this one one quote, you know, you know me, I've got to quote somebody, specializing your 1%, you know, from now on, specialize. Never make concession to the 99 parts of you which are like everybody else at the expense of the one which is unique. Yes. And you're able to do that now, I think, because there is literally a market that is ready, hungry, and starving for this yep. innovation. Yep. No, no. I think I think you're absolutely right. There's. Um, it gets back to what we were talking about before that there's a um, there's no question. There's a very large side of the market that is that is traditional, and where stock and cost containment and all those things are really really important. But you've got a huge, growing, burgeoning side of the market that is looking for unique. And, and does not care about any of the other things that I was just talking about. Um, I no. mean, sure, you, right. you need to return someone's phone call. You need to have, you need to excel in the basics of business from the standpoint of shipping an order on time or, uh, you know, basic right. customer service, but uh, not at the expense of um, product innovation and new ideas. And that's what this new class of distributor is thirsting for. And as I say, we're we're very happy to be playing a role in enabling that. What I hope from this conversation that we've had is that we keep having this conversation with folks offline. So please give us your feedback. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Let us know what you think in terms of, are we right about some of these comments? Are we wrong? We'd love to hear your opinion about this episode. So give us a go. Mark, thanks for the time. Yeah, thank you, Bobby. That was lots of fun and uh, you have a great one, man. All right, you too. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of SKUcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to SKUcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends, thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.